Well, rather than read a scripture, which is my normal way to begin a message, this morning it's going to be kind of a, uh, an overview of John, so I'll be referring to a lot of scriptures during the message, and uh, so you can just follow along. If you don't have a printed message, feel free to grab one either now or later. They're at both exits, and the... Um, printed message and the audio message eventually will all be on the internet and you can access them there. And then there are bullet uh, announced, what do I want to say, outlines in your bulletin uh, that you can follow with the message as well. So we're going to kind of do a survey, a final flyover, I'm calling it, of John. When Marla and I have had occasion to fly from uh, Flagstaff to Phoenix or vice versa, we, we've always enjoyed looking out the window and uh, can't understand why some people sit there reading a book or whatever they're doing rather than looking out the window at the beautiful scenery. But we especially enjoy looking down on the trails we've hiked in Sedona and we'll go, oh yeah, yeah, there's that trail and look, there's the summit and there we did that and all of that kind of thing, and you get a perspective from the air that you don't get when you're hiking on the ground. From the ground, of course, you see all the details, and that's wonderful, but from the air, you get the big picture, and that gives you a little different view. Well, we've been hiking through John now for a little over two years and uh, enjoying some details along the trail, but before we move on, and I hope, Lord willing, to begin Colossians next Sunday. I thought it would be helpful to do this final flyover of John, especially in light of the fact last week I asked for a show of hands of how many of you were not here when I began John, and I would say two-thirds of the congregation raised their hands. So uh, I did sort of an initial flyover then. Uh, If you can remember all those points, you're free to get up and go get a cup of coffee and Uh, go to Sunday school or whatever, but uh, I think it might be helpful to look at it. So John begins his gospel by speaking about Jesus, the eternal word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the correct translation Uh, against the Jehovah's Witnesses, is the Word was God. And then jumping down to verse 14, John adds, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John begins with Jesus. John ends with Jesus in chapter 21 as he shares that wonderful encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the seven disciples. And um, John um, tells us how he called Peter, uh, and through Peter, all of us, to follow him in spite of our past failures. He restores Peter and gives him that command, you follow me. John's gospel is um, a testimony, a witness. That word occurs often in his gospel, 
a witness to Jesus Christ. It begins with the testimony of John the Baptist in chapter 1 where he says, I'm not the light, but John bears witness to the light, who is Jesus. And then John ends with an affirmation of his own testimony in John 21:24. He said, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things And then the affirmation, and we know that his testimony is true. So it's a testimony to Christ. And the crucial question that John wants to answer is, who is Jesus Christ? That is life's most important question for anyone to answer, who is Jesus Christ? And John's answer, we've already Uh, seen on the screen this morning that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And John also wants us to know not only who Jesus is, but who we are and what we should do in response to uh, Jesus Christ. And so, as we've seen again, his purpose statement, John 20, verse 30 and 31, therefore, Many other signs Jesus also did or performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Here's why. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So to sum it up, the Gospel of John then is a selective, reliable testimony that shows us who Jesus is, it shows us who we are, and it shows us how we must respond. And I'm dividing this message into two broad sections. First of all, John's method, and then John's message. Let's look first at John's method. The Gospel of John is a selective, historical, symbolic, and purposeful testimony to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's walk through those. First of all, John is a deliberately selective testimony, and we've already seen that in his purpose statement for writing. He he says, many other signs were given. I picked these. Um, John repeats that in the very last verse of his gospel, as we saw last week, verse 25 of chapter 21 John says there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, he says, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So the point is John did not intend to write a comprehensive biography about Jesus, but rather he's giving us a selective account for the purpose of leading us, his readers, to personal faith in Jesus, faith that brings eternal life. And in doing so, John omits any mention of Jesus' birth. Um, Probably John had interviewed Mary, but there's no mention of Jesus' birth. He does not cover Jesus' baptism, his temptation by Satan, the transfiguration, The Lord's Supper, even though he spends extensive time from chapter 13 to 17 in the upper room, never mentions the the bread and the the wine. 
Uh, he doesn't mention Jesus' agony in the garden. Uh, he doesn't mention Jesus' ascension. And I think we can assume that since he was writing near the end of the first century, John assumed that his readers, for the most part, had read one of the other gospel accounts or the book of Acts. Um, but let me just give you a broad outline that we've been following of John, centered on the idea of John as the gospel of belief, as uh, Merrill Tenney calls it. <clears throat> and I couldn't fit this in your little bulletin outline, or I would have had to go into an extra page. But it's in the printed notes, so you don't have to write furiously. Just grab a, a printed message later if you want it. But in the beginning, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 is the prologue. And there we see the Son of God, who is the object of belief. And the theme verse might be John 1:14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 12 is a lengthy section uh, on testimony for belief in the Son of God. And uh, the theme there might be Andrew's testimony in chapter 1, verse 41. We have found the Messiah. Now that section breaks into two sections. From chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of chapter 4, there are uh, are testimonies of initial belief in the Son of God. But beginning at chapter 5, when Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethesda, there is mounting unbelief in the Son of God that builds up to the time when he raises Lazarus from the dead and then on through chapter 12. Then beginning in chapter 13 through chapter 17, um, we have the Son of God's teaching for his followers so that they might believe in him. And we might pick there the theme verse, John 14, 1, Jesus says, believe in me. Then <clears throat> from chapters 18 and 19, describe the tragedy of unbelief in the Son of God as Jesus is tried and crucified. And uh, there the theme might be the ring of the Jewish leaders who call out in John 19:15, we have no king but Caesar. Tragic testimony that they gave. Uh, <clears throat> the fifth point is in chapter 20, and that is the triumph of belief in the Son of God. As Jesus is risen, Thomas the doubter becomes Thomas the confessor as he cries out, my Lord and my God. And then... Finally, we've just covered chapter 21, the epilogue, and that's the consequence of belief in the Son of God, and that is tend my sheep. In other words, those who have believed are to serve him out of love for him. So John is selective. Secondly, John is a historically factual testimony to Jesus Christ. I'm going to mention next that it's symbolic, but that doesn't mean it's not factual. Uh, it's not a myth. It's not a fable. John emphasizes that he and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of the events that he reports. And other than a person having some a priori bias against miracles, which many skeptics do, there is no reason to doubt John's testimony. Um, 
skeptics will sometimes say, well, if I saw a miracle, I'd believe. In fact, I just read that yesterday. I get an email from Christianity Today, and they had a very tragic interview with a man named Bart Campolo. He is the son of the well-known Tony Campolo. He's written Christian books. He's spoken at Christian conferences. And now he's an atheist who is the chaplain, uh, the humanist chaplain at USC. You know, why do humanists need a chaplain? <clears throat> but anyway, that's what he is. And uh, they, they asked him, well, why don't you believe? And he said, I've never seen a miracle. And they said, well, what would it take for you to believe? And he said, well, if somebody prayed that an amputee would grow a limb and I watched it grow, I'd believe. And I thought, no, you wouldn't. You would not. John makes it clear that some who were present when Jesus did some spectacular miracles went away unbelieving. Um, there were those who saw Jesus heal this lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And the result was John 5, verse 18, they sought to kill Jesus. You know, go figure. Or the religious leaders in John chapter 9 interviewed this man born blind whom Jesus had healed. They know that Jesus healed him and they kick the man out of the synagogue and rail against him and refuse to believe. And then the the capstone is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. I mean, if there was ever a miracle that should have caused everyone to bow before Jesus, that was it. And instead, some who saw it went away to the religious leaders, reported it to them, and they began to plot even more intensely how to kill Jesus, the resurrection and the life. <clears throat> now, we'll look at a moment in why otherwise rational people refuse to believe these factual accounts of Jesus' miracles. But the point I'm making here is John wasn't making up uh, myths or fables. These were eyewitness accounts of miracles that authenticated who Jesus is, and uh, some believed but some did not. But they testify again to who Jesus is. A third thing to note is that John then is an obviously symbolic testimony. <clears throat> John <clears throat> is full of all kinds of symbolic words and symbolic events that you can read over on the surface, and then you go, you know, I think there's something more to that than what I just read. And it causes you to go deeper as you think about it. Uh, that doesn't negate the factuality of it, but John just wants us to discern the true significance of these things in relation to Jesus. He uses the word signs to refer to Jesus' miracles. And a sign is not the thing. A sign points to the real thing. And in the case of these miracles, that's the issue. Uh, John could have chosen hundreds of miracles that Jesus did. There are 35 specific miracles in all the Gospels, but there are many times when it says um, Jesus healed everyone in the multitude who, who they brought to him or at Peter's door uh, after he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, the whole city came and brought people. And so not counting those, 
There are 35. John chose seven, not counting Jesus' resurrection and not counting the post-resurrection miraculous catch of fish that we recently looked at in chapter 21. The seven are, in John 2, the changing of the water into wine. In John chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, he heals the nobleman's son from a distance. In John chapter 5, he heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Same chapter, Jesus walks on the water. In John chapter 9, he heals the man born blind and then the um, kind of the uh, summation of all the miracles, the greatest of them all, humanly speaking, is raising Lazarus from the dead after he has been in the tomb for four days and is beginning even to decompose. So um, in at least three of those miracles, the significance of them is obvious because Jesus tells us the significance After he feeds the 5,000, there's a discourse in which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Um, That's pretty obvious. Before he opens the eyes of the man born blind in chapter 9, in chapter 8, and verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he tells Martha in John 11, 25, I am the the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now those three I am statements are three out of seven I am statements that John uh, places throughout his gospel. Here are the others. I am the door of the sheep, John chapter 10 verse 7. I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10 verse 11 And verse 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. And then John 15, 1 and 5, I am the true vine. Now, obviously, Jesus is not literally bread, and he is not literally a door, and he is not literally a vine. These are symbols that make you think about the meaning of what those things stand for. And they tell us about who Jesus truly is. John uses many other uh, words that are filled with symbolic significance, such as life or the new birth in chapter 3, light and darkness, uh, the world. John uses that term 78 times. Uh, witness or testify, as I mentioned, is used 14 times as a noun, 33 as a verb. A truth is used 25 times throughout John. The phrase of Jesus being sent is frequent in John, and so is the concept of hour. His hour had not yet come. So John is selective. John is factual. John is symbolic. In the fourth place, John is a profoundly simple uh, testimony or witness to Christ. And what I mean by that is, on one level, John is so simple that even a little child can understand uh, the good news in John. And yet, it's so deep, you can study it all of your life, 
and you'll never get to the bottom of its riches. For example, children can all understand, and we teach them from uh, toddler age up, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him has eternal life. What a wonderfully simple message is in that verse. And yet, there are some deep theological issues in that verse over which books have been written that just you come away scratching your head saying, wow, this is deep stuff. Um, For example, does God love everyone in the world equally? Well, then, why didn't he devise a way for getting the gospel to everyone? And I've read a book by D.A. Carson on the difficult doctrine of the love of God. It's a very good book, by the way. But he explores that question that that verse raises. Or what does it mean that Jesus is God's only begotten Son? There you plunge into the mystery of the Trinity. And there are books and books written on the Trinity. Uh, What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Controversy rages over that this very day among scholars. Uh, What does it mean to perish or to have eternal life? And again, uh, there is controversy there as some deny that perish means eternal punishment and so on. And you can go throughout John and there are many, many, many texts like that that on one level you go, yeah, that's simple. And then you start thinking about it and scratching your head and going, whoa, this is a lot deeper than I thought. And you can just keep going down, down, down as you plumb the depths of John. Uh, So John is selective. It is factual. It is symbolic. It is profoundly simple, simple and profound. And then finally, John is a deliberately purposeful testimony. And we've seen that his purpose is that you and I, his readers, that, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we may have life in his name. In other words, John didn't write his gospel so that you can say, well, that was really an interesting series by Pastor Steve, and remain unchanged. That's not the purpose of John. He did not write it so that all these scholars and theologians could write these weighty volumes for everybody to... Uh, you know, debate. That wasn't his point. John wrote his point very purposely, and it is the most important purpose in the universe because the eternal destiny of every soul rests on what will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him? Will you just kind of be indifferent toward him? If so, John is pretty clear you will perish. Or will you believe in him unto eternal life? That's John's aim and his desire. So, don't leave John's gospel without applying it. Or you missed it. You missed the most important thing in all of life. So, John's gospel then, his method is to to write a, a selective historical, symbolic, purposeful testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. John's message, let's look at that. And the Gospel of John reveals three things. It reveals who Jesus is. It reveals who we are. 
and it reveals how we must respond. First of all, the Gospel of John reveals who Jesus is, namely that he is God in human flesh. He is the Christ. He is the only Savior of the world. Three parts of this. First, that Jesus is God, and John doesn't beat around the bush. He opens the Gospel with that statement, as I've already read in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you missed it, he quickly adds in verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now that, of course, undercuts and contradicts the Arian heresy which has been revived in our day with the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that Jesus is the first created being. If he is, then John 1.3 is not true because something came into being uh, apart from Jesus. Namely, he came into being apart from himself. John says, no, that's not true. He is the first cause of everything. He is the creator. Uh, there are three lines of evidence that establish Jesus' deity in John. His words, his works, and the witness of others to him. <clears throat> First of all, Jesus' words show that he is God. He told Nicodemus that he had come down out of heaven and that whoever believes in him has eternal life. Think about it. How could any man, how could any one who is not God make such a claim? I came down out of heaven, and if you believe me, I'll give you eternal life. That's a, a claim to deity. When the Jews in chapter 5 accused Jesus of making himself equal with God, rather than if he had been a, a good Jew, uh, he would have said, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. God forbid, only, only Yahweh is God. Uh, there is no other. But instead, Jesus follows it up with a string of claims to being equal to the Father. He says that all should honor him, even as they honor the Father, John 5.23. All who believe in him, he says, have passed out of death and into life, John 5.24. He said that he had life in himself, and he was able to give it to whomever he wills. That's in John 5.21 and 26. He claimed to have the authority to judge all people. Uh, John 5:22 and 27. He made the claim that someday he is going to speak the word and everyone who has ever died will raise, be raised from the dead and they will be judged either unto eternal life or eternal condemnation. Again, that is a claim to deity. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Claim to deity. John chapter 14 and verse 9, he tells Philip, uh, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, a clear claim to deity. And there are many other claims. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. These are all claims that no creature could rightly make. Not only do Jesus' words reveal that he is God, but his works reveal that he is God. And as I've already mentioned, 
John just picks seven signs or miracles along with Jesus' resurrection and the miraculous catch of fish to show that he is God. The crux miracle is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 goes so far as to say, if he's not risen, you're wasting your time to be a Christian. So everything hinges on that miracle. Um, And as I said, it's not just the miracles, it's the significance of them that testify to his deity. He not only feeds the 5,000, but he says, I am the bread of life. He opens the eyes of the man born blind, but he also says, I am the light of the world. Uh, He raises Lazarus from the dead, but he claims, I am the resurrection and the life, and I'll give life to everyone who believes in me. So again, the works combined with the words are claims to deity. And then there's the witness of others that John marshals. Uh, Witness of others to Jesus show that he's God. This is really remarkable. John was by birth a Jewish monotheist. The Jews were very fierce in believing in monotheism. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. John, furthermore, has spent three years in intimate fellowship with Jesus as he reminds us toward the end of the gospel. He is the one who laid his head back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and asked who is the one who betrays him. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet, after those three years with Jesus, John writes a gospel testifying that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh. That is a remarkable thing. Uh, He reports the witness in chapter 1 of John the Baptist to Jesus as the light. Also in chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael testifies, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Uh, The Apostle Peter confesses in John 6, 69, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then at the climax of John's Gospel, the formerly doubting Thomas falls before Jesus, now believing and exclaims in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. So Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus is human, and John testifies to that, as we've already seen in verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Often throughout the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and that reflects both his deity, because it is a reflection of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, but also his humanity. John also shows us Jesus being weary from the journey. In John chapter 4, Jesus was hungry, uh, Jesus was thirsty, and Jesus had genuine human emotions. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus, of course, is subject to death on the cross. So as God in human flesh, Jesus is the only one who could bear our sins, because then As God, his sacrifice was acceptable. As man, it represented human beings who trust in him. And so, not only is Jesus God and Jesus human, but he is the Christ, the only Savior. 
That term Christ is the Greek transliteration of anointed one. The Hebrew is Messiah, Messiah. That means the anointed one. And so we just transliterate the Greek into English as Christ. But it means he is the one who is promised in the Old Testament. He is the son of David that the Old Testament promises would come. He would bear our sins as Isaiah 53 predicts. John the Baptist picked up on that. He announces in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. Uh, the jubilant Samaritans testify in John 4:42, this one is indeed the savior of the world. But the question arises, well, why do we need a savior? Why not just a good moral example? And that leads to the third thing. John's gospel reveals who Jesus is or the second thing I should say, it reveals who we are. Secondly, it reveals who we are. Namely, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. The reason that the Jews needed a sacrificial lamb was to atone for their sins. And John shows us Jesus is that lamb, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world, as we just saw. Um, John begins, however, by testifying something tragic, that Jesus came into the world and the world did not know him. And not only did the world not know him, but the Jews, his own people, rejected him. And the reason is plainly stated in John three nineteen and 20. This is the judgment that the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And then he explains, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I've mentioned many times here that the word Savior is a radical word. In other words, you don't need a Savior if you're doing pretty well, thanks. You know, you just need help. You don't need a Savior if you just need a boost. When you need a Savior is, you're perishing, and there's nothing you can do about your desperate condition. Uh, You know, if you're drowning in the ocean, you need a Savior, a lifeguard to come and rescue you. And uh, it's interesting in John 3, Nicodemus was a good religious man. Jesus says, you're the teacher in Israel. And yet Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, to you, Nicodemus, the religious man, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in John 5, 24, Jesus talks about those who believe in him. He says they have passed out of death into life. There's not a whole lot a dead person can do about their condition, but Jesus can. He is the one who raises the dead, as we see in John. And so, dead people need a God-sent Savior, not just a moral example, and Jesus clearly is that Savior. So, John tells us Jesus is God in human flesh. He tells us that He is the Christ, the only Savior, and He shows that we are sinners who need that Savior, 
because we all hate the light. We all are dead in our sins and need new life from God. And so thirdly, John tells us then how we must respond to this testimony about Jesus, namely, believe in him, grow in him, and serve him. First of all, and most importantly, we need to believe in him. And John 3.16 does not say that God so loved the world that he saved everyone. It says that God so loved the world that we might believe in Jesus Christ so that we would not perish. Um, John's purpose in writing, as we have seen in John 20.31, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's interesting that the verb to believe is used 11 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 9 times in Luke, and 98 times in John. So it occurs more than three times all the other Gospels put together in the Gospel of John. John wants you to believe in Jesus so that you may have life in his name. Now, this isn't just generic faith. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows kind of stuff. John wants you to believe something with specific content, namely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Savior who died to pay the penalty for your sins. And saving faith, again, is not merely intellectual. There's debate about this today. It's very clearly commitment of your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. Um, I've used this example. Probably everybody sitting here this morning believes that airplanes fly and can fly. We all believe that intellectually. But that won't get you from here to Chicago or New York or any other destination. You can believe it all day long and it won't get you off the ground until you commit yourself to that belief by getting on board the plane. And in the same way, there are people who grow up in the church and, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's the Son of God. But they've never committed their life to Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone to be their ticket into heaven. They're invariably trusting in their own goodness. Hey, I grew up in the church. I'm a good person. They're like Nicodemus. Hey, I'm a good Jew. You know, I'm a leader in Judaism, he could have said. And Jesus said, no, that's not enough. To get to heaven, you have to trust in the shed blood of Jesus to pay for you the sinner's sin debt that you owe. And when you commit your eternal destiny, not to your good works, but to Jesus and him alone, that's what John is after. That's what gets us into heaven. Not only, though, must we believe in Jesus, John shows we must grow in Jesus Christ. And I can't trace it here this morning, but in John... Belief is initial, but it's also ongoing. We see that with the disciples. They believe early on, but then later they believe. And then later Jesus, before he goes to raise Lazarus, said, I'm glad for your sakes that, he, that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go. And so there are levels of belief, levels of growth in him. 
And as we abide in Him and we obey His commandments, as He teaches in chapter 15, we grow in Him. John talks about knowing Jesus. And you think about it, you don't just come to know someone at a point in time and drop it, or you really don't know them. You grow in that. And those of us who have been married for decades know that deepens over time as you work at that relationship. And so... Growing to know Christ requires spending time in his word, learning to obey his commandments, deepening your love for him, and it's a lifelong process that begins at that first moment of faith, but it continues. And then finally, we need to serve Christ out of love. We believe in him, we grow in him, we serve him out of love for him, and That's the analogy, again, of the vine and the branches where Jesus said, this is my will that you bear much fruit, that your fruit would remain. Uh, It's the point in John chapter 21, as we have seen, where three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And when Peter answers three times, yes, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus' comeback is, then feed or tend my sheep. He is to serve Jesus out of love. And the point is, Jesus didn't save you so you could just come and sit and warm a a chair on Sunday morning and leave. He wants you involved according to how he's gifted you to serve him because you love him and to bear much fruit. So John's gospel then gives us this wonderful news that God so loved us that he sent his own son to die for our sins. But there's a, a theme of warning that runs through John. Uh, There are those who heard God's son teach, they saw him do miracles, and they rejected his teaching and didn't believe in him. Back in chapter 6, we encountered some of Jesus' disciples, said they were his disciples, not the twelve, but they turned away because Jesus taught some hard things, and that's a warning to us. Some of the Jews in John chapter 8, it says, believed in Jesus, and yet he goes on to say, you're still of your father, the devil, because they didn't genuinely believe in Jesus. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, and Jesus said, didn't I myself choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil, referring to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so John gives us those negative examples so that we will not make the same fatal, eternally fatal mistake. John, in other words, draws a line in the sand. And I want to draw that for you right now. You're on one side or you're on the other. Either in some way you're rejecting Jesus or you believe in Jesus unto eternal life. And that is my prayer, as we've taught through this book, that everyone here would have the joy of knowing Jesus through faith in him and the eternal life that he freely gives to every believer. Let's bow before him. Dear Father, you know the hearts of every person here. You know my heart, how prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Father, I pray that uh, you would strengthen the faith of your people through the Gospel of John as we meditate on it and as we reread it in the days and months ahead. I pray, Lord, that you would 
especially draw the line for any who do not yet believe in Jesus, that they would not be comfortable, that they would not be happy and content until they come to the cross as guilty sinners and recognize that they cannot save themselves, that only Jesus and his shed blood satisfies your just and holy wrath against sin and that none would perish, but that all would believe in Jesus unto eternal life. I pray that for our children. Lord, they're growing up in in an increasingly secular country here. And I pray, Lord, that you would work the miracle of regeneration in our children, in Sunday school, in our home, as we teach them and model for them the ways of Jesus. I pray for our college young people, Lord, that they would not be seduced away by the so-called intellectualism on the campus that denies your word, but that they would grow strong in faith during their college years and go on to be strong witnesses for you. And We ask all these things that you would be glorified in our midst for Jesus' sake. Amen.